Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. A baby Fahodier, this is the African Liberation Media. I have brothers Makaru and brother Zamos. Few things to talk about during this scientific soul session. Climate change. Personally, I feel powerless. And unfortunately, this time around, there will be no new places to migrate to, no new lands to conquer, no new people to subjugate. They'll take the whole planet with them. This system of unfettered capitalism Secondly, questions abound as to what will happen to Gucci Grace, I believe she's referred to as in the wake of the passing of Zimbabwe's President Mugabe. And of course, uh, I have been studying this book. The forward is written by Chuck D. The title of the book is Maroon the Implacable, the Collected Writings of Russell Maroon, Schultz, I highly recommend it. The brother offers a prescriptive method for how to deal with the system effectively. And I'm in the process now really reformulating my ideas in terms of the Black Panther Party, mistakes, weaknesses, etc., etc. I'm not going to take much more time in the introduction, but the brother deals with the concept of Matriarchy. Now, we're not talking about Jesse Smollett. This is a bad brother. And he echoes many of the thoughts that uh, our esteemed transition brother, Dr. Kwame Ture, articulated the whole concept of matriarchy, uh, the role and the value of sisters in struggle. Of course, brothers oppress sisters. But one area where we have never been able to oppress black women has been in the struggle for liberation. The litany of names you're very well familiar with, Asada Shakur, the soul of the Black Panther Party, if we didn't know it, but then the FBI and Jed Gover, Gad Gover, the brother refers to him as, he definitely knew it, Queen Nzinga, Yah Santa Juan, just a list of, a, a plethora of sisters who contribute mightily to uh, struggle. In reading Maroon Schultz, it's kind of obvious to me that he had hope. And this will be my last point before we turn it over to the brothers. He had hope in a multiracial popular struggle. You know, questionable to say the least. Uh, he also had articulates some very poignant points, and that is uh, many of the points articulated by Dr. Marimba Ani as it relates to a concept she describes as the rhetorical ethic. Uh, Schultz has alerted me to the fact that we too are most capable of espousing a rhetorical ethic. We speak in terms of African-centered con- consciousness and communalism, but in fact, um, you know, when the deal goes down, we practice Eurocentric individualism the rhetorical ethic having a parallel development, not only espoused by the progenitor, 
but the progeny of the European as well, African people, marooned here, no pun intended, here in Uncle Snakes. Got Brother Macaroo and Brother Amos. Take it wherever you want to take it, brother. Habibi Fahodie, Badu Mampapano, African family. Um, just want to say, first of all, that uh, you know our thoughts are with our brothers and sisters uh, in Zimbabwe. Uh, we found out this morning that uh, Robert Gabriel Mugabe, the African liberator and revolutionary, had transitioned to the spiritual world at, at the age of 95. Clearly one of the most uh, significant of the uh, African liberators on our motherland in the struggle against uh, colonialism, you know, following in the footsteps of uh, Kwame Nkrumah and Ahmed Sekutore, Patrice Lumumba, Amilcar Cabral, Julius Nayeri, the Mwalimu, Modibo Kieta of Mali, and many others. Uh, but whereas the, the British and the French largely transitioned um, out of colonialism with the hope that the uh, comprador class that they had been training would eventually take over, and where they didn't take over, they engineered coups against people like Modibo Kiata and Kwame Nkrumah, Robert Mugabe and our brothers and sisters in Southern Africa, Angola, Mozambique, Namibia, uh, and Zimbabwe, you know, had to actually engage in an armed struggle to rid themselves of these invaders from Europe. And Robert Mugabe uh, was at the, at the forefront of leading uh, the organization. Initially, there was, uh, he was part of the Zimbabwe African People's Union, which was led by Joshua Nkomo, and they had some ideological differences. Uh, some of these differences uh, were, were impacted uh, perhaps by the Cold War. But uh, just to give an example, uh, Zapu was more ideologically aligned with the ANC, the African National Congress of uh, Nelson Mandela, Oliver Tambo, Walter Sisulu, and others. And... Uh, the ANC has always had a, as you were talking about earlier, a multiracial uh, component, a hope. Zapu was more aligned with the ANC. ZANU, under Robert Mugabe, was more aligned with the Pan-African, Pan-Africanist Congress of uh, Azania, which had more of a nationalistic approach that, you know, this is something that African people have to do for themselves. So um, the organizations uh, split, but they continued to fight uh, a united front in terms of they had a common enemy. And uh, they, when they had the elections, uh, they, when they achieved independence in 1980 and had the elections, ZANU under Robert Mugabe won the elections and Robert Mugabe was elected president. Um, so, th th so this brother, first of all, led a successful wing of an armed struggle against the white supremacists, literally brought the white supremacists to their knees to the point that uh, Ian Smith and, and uh, his uh, 
his comrades in uh, his, the, the European co his European comrades in Zimbabwe ran to the United Kingdom and the United States and begged for a peace treaty. Now, a lot of us that have grown up in the belly of the beast would never have trusted these Europeans from the United States and the United Kingdom, the, you know, this white, the Anglo white power structure to honor a treaty. But we weren't in Robert Mugabe's shoes at the time. And so when uh, the U.S. and the U.K. agreed that they would put up the, the funds because the Africans would say, we are fighting to take our land back. We are fighting to take our land back. And so the United States and the United Kingdom, when they met and signed what was called the Lancaster House Agreement, they said, okay, we will, we will pay them for the land. Now, the three of us sitting in this room would never, have, would never trust them. The three of us in this room would most likely say, we got we to gotta defeat these people on the battlefield and run them out of the country. But at the same time, I guess some people could say, well, you know, if you continue to bloodshed, how many of your people are you going to lose? But if the people are committed to liberty or death, as our ancestors were in, uh, on the island of Aiti, then, then they'll continue to struggle. And they could have seized the land, but instead they agreed to this treaty. And then what happened a few years later? <laughs> the same thing they did to uh, Sitting Bull and, every, and every, everybody else. They reneged on the treaty. They said they were going to pay the, the white people who, had, who came from Europe and stole the land. The United States and the United Kingdom said they would pay them for the farmland and, you know, let them leave the country. And then they reneged on the deal. I mean, this, this, I mean, this is what always happens. You cannot trust them, particularly when you have them on the precipice of total capitulation. So, you know, I, I'm sitting here and, and never having led an armed struggle, but just based on the way we have grown up under these people, we just wouldn't. You, you have to think about that. You have to, you have to think about, it. will they honor the treaty? And they didn't. And so after years and years and years, they didn't honor the treaty, and the people started saying, what about the land, Mugabe? Mm. So we decided to say, well, we, they, they're not going to pay them for the land, so we're going to take the land. And what did the Europeans do? Now they take sanctions. They, 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 they start applying these crushing economic sanctions on the country. Here, here's, here's a lesson for us. When we when any any time Africans militarily defeat Europeans on the battlefield, if they can't overthrow those Africans via uh, economic coup, and they can't otherwise control them, then they apply crushing e the economic sanctions. They try to crush the economies of these countries to make them suffer. Mm. This started with Haiti in 1804. And so the same game plan was put in place, you know, against uh, Zimbabwe, you know, in the in the 1990s, in the early in the early 2000s, the same game plan was put in place. And you know, and and so these sanctions remain in place, right? They were, they were initiated under the uh, presidency of George W. Bush, and the way the law is written, 
uh, it has to be renewed every year. So Bush renewed it. I think it started in 2003. Bush renewed it for the, his remaining years. Obama renewed it for all eight years. Trump has renewed it for the two years that he's been in office. So, you know, this is why the country, a, lot, a large part of why the country has been, you know, uh, suffering economically. And a lot, and they all, they say, well, Mugabe wrecked the country when he took the land from the white people. No, that's not what, what wrecked the country economically was the, was, the, was, the grip, was the crippling sanctions that were, that were imposed. So, you know, so there are two things to keep in mind. One, if you, when, you, when, you, when you're dealing with these people, if you sign a peace treaty or any kind of treaty, you can look for them to renege on the treaty to uh, abandon the treaty, to not honor the treaty. That's just their history. I don't know what it takes for our people to realize this. And the second thing is, you know, we, ha we, have, to, we have to be prepared for the, for the, for the crushing economics that, that are going to come down. And, you know, very few countries can withstand this. Mm -hmm. Cuba did. Mm -hmm. Cuba withstood it. Now, for years, Cuba was... Supported financially by the uh, Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union collapsed. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, the uh, the U.S. imperialists were absolutely certain that that Cuba would crumble economically, and that there would be an uprising. But the Cuban people, led by true revolutionaries, simply went down within themselves. People, uh, th their caloric intake went down to about twelve hundred calories a day, and I think. People expected to have at least 2,000 to 2,500 calories a day. They, they, started, they started building, they, they put together urban, urban uh, farms and, and, and people on, on the top of their apartments. They, they, had, they had rooftop gardens on their apartments so that they could, they could at least feed one another. They could at least feed them even, in, even if they, they couldn't eat any meat, but they still could eat vegetables and they could get protein from beans and whatnot. So... You have to have a you have to have an economic plan if you uh, if you're going to challenge these people along those lines because they're going to come after you one way or another. But all in all, what I would say is that you know a lot of these uh, people who are criticizing. First of all, uh, the, the the criticisms that are coming from the North Atlantic imperialists uh, can be totally disregarded. There's, there's there's nothing that they can say that 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 that, that is of any any value to us. But we have a lot of people within our community, so-called conscious people, and uh, I haven't had a chance to respond to this brother. He's we're going we 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 deal in, in in some issues here, but a lot of them are criticizing Mugabe, and none of us have ever, none of us have led a li a successful armed liberation struggle that defeated white supremacy, and none of us has ever run a country. We have difficulty just maintaining organizations for three or four years. Wow. So, you know, this, this is what we have to understand. And, and, I, and I'm saying we, because, you know, I'm the veteran activist in the room, and I've been through I don't know how many organizations, right? So, uh, I mean, this, this is what it's all about. But, um, of course, any human being is going to make, make mistakes. Look, the United States fought a civil war. What was it? Uh, 60, uh, 
what 73 years after the founding of the country after mm-hmm. the after the, um, mm-hmm. the 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 constitution of the country was established they the united states was in a civil war by by, by some estimates cost 800,000 lives okay so i mean no sooner than than they, they came out of the uh the war for independence which they signed the uh, treaty of paris in 18 um, what was it, 1803 or was it? No, 1783, they signed the, the Treaty of Paris. And then uh, by 1812, they were fighting the British again. Mm-hmm. So so countries have growing pains. Look, Zimbabwe is a young nation. It just got its independence in 1980. Of course it's going to have growing pains. And then, and then when you got the entire global white supremacy dynamic, white power structure coming down on you, of course it's going to be difficult. So, I mean, that's just what I wanted to say. But, you know, I honor the brother. Uh, in, in my opinion, he, he, he will go down as it. I, I put him in my, in, in my list of esteemed ancestors. Okay. So I that's where, I, that's, that's I, where I go with that. Go ahead, Brother Amor. Well, definitely want to take the time to acknowledge Baba Mugabe, who is an ancestor now, Nana Mugabe, a great ancestor, and he was a great man. And as we know, all men are not perfect. All human beings are not perfect. But he dedicated his life to the liberation and empowerment of his people. And, you know, he may have made some mistakes along the way. But overall, Brother Mugabe uh, was a serious soldier who not only fought the Europeans, but dealt with the blows that they dealt him for years and the criticisms, as you just stated, from his own people. And that's one of the hardest things to do when you're the leader of a country and you know the plan that you have to get the country to the point where you become self-dependent and you have self-control. You know that there are going to be some hard times and it weighs on you. Uh, A lot of people, we go home to our comfortable homes and live these comfortable lifestyles and we don't really understand the amount of pressure that a lot of leaders are under when you're talking about taking care of a whole country Mm -hmm. a country full of people that have to eat a country full of people that have to live work work you know economically exactly and when you've been economically castrated from all of the countries who have stole the majority of the world's wealth and still continue to parlay that wealth into these various empires that they run and control, then, like you said, it's going to be times where you're going to to struggle, which is the importance of African countries being able to develop, continually working to develop trade, economic systems where we can be dependent from that economic system that the Europeans are in control over and be in control of our own destiny. Yeah, and support one another. And support one another. Yeah. And Mugabe was also a very vocal leader. He's He spoke strongly against white supremacy, white oppression, white racism. He spoke positively uh, in regards to Africans in the diaspora, he was a student, 
not a direct student, but he was a student of the teachings of the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey, which he quoted a lot of times. He spoke strongly against things that he felt were un-African, like homosexuality. And he was often criticized, in which his name is still drugged through the mud by many of these black homosexuals and, and white homosexuals who tried to slander his name in promoting their LGBTQP agenda. So Mugabe, by many, by many of us, was called the Lion of Africa mm-hmm. because he was not afraid to put himself out there. How many of us can say the same thing? Exactly. He put his life on the line on the physical battlefield, mm-hmm. and then he also continued to put his life and his reputation on the line to stand up against what he knew was European white oppression white racism and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So I have Haru to the great, the great, great Nana Robert Gabriel Mugabe. Ashe, Ashe. Yeah, I'm thinking guys, uh, the concept of urban gardens is something that we can implement, you know, right here, right now. Okay, uh, brother Makaru, you may want to speak to the issue of uh, what's taking place at the mill's place, but that needs to be multiplied, you know, given the fact that uh, urban gardens are needed all along Betty's Ford Road, the along many of the colonial enclaves we suffer from, you know, what I might describe as a food desert. Mm-hmm. Really, yeah, I mean, how can you wage any type of, I mean, we're not even talking about a struggle, how can you even conduct your day-to-day business Unless you, you know, acquire a modicum of health. How can, how can students concentrate in school? Uh, okay, right. You know, the ramifications are broad and far-reaching. That's something that, you know, we can do. We just have to put in the work, so to say. And, and also, if, if it is obvious that the corporate America is the enemy of mankind when then food can become a weapon. It is a weapon. It is a weapon. Exactly. You know, if we implement those strategies. And another question you have to ask yourself is, what are you willing to sacrifice? You know, I was struck by that. You were talking about the sacrifices on the part of the people of Cuba, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in the pursuit of a common goal and agenda. You know, it's definitely lessons to be learned Exactly, exactly. And another thing I wanted to add uh, that I too think is important for people to realize, you can criticize Mugabe, but look at the African continent and look at the countries who refuse to have AFRICOM in their country. (laughs) One of those countries, there's only three. One of those countries is Zimbabwe. I was going to say you can count them on one hand. Right. (laughs) And the reason why is because he was for true African liberation. And you know you can't have any African liberation if your enemy has has a free reign to operate their military in your country. Exactly. So all of the people that's praising people like Paul Kagame. Mm. <laughs> you got to be kidding me, brother. Anybody that is celebrated by his enemy is not for true African liberation and self-control. Exactly. You know, the, 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 queen, the queen knighted Mugabe, this is one criticism, some some so-called, quote-unquote, 
contradicts. Well, why did he accept being knighted, you know, by by uh, Queen Elizabeth? And and you know, you you could you could question that. But the thing of it is, is that what impact did that have on the way he was running the country? Did he compromise anything? I mean, to me, it was like he was playing her. Like, okay, if you want to give me this, okay, that's fine. I'll I'll play along with this. But but look, the land we're gonna take our land back. See, I'm not I'm not compromising. This this doesn't change me. But but one of the other things um, I just read in uh, Namibia, and you know we 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 know that uh, you know Namibia, uh, you know has uh, you know there's a lot of desert in in Namibia, and um, they they've been experiencing a drought. Uh, a drought, no no doubt, is related to climate change, and they have uh, an estimated. The government is estimating that there are 700,000 people in Namibia that are going to need, uh, you know, food subsidies just to survive on a daily basis right now, just because just because of the drought. But this goes back to what Brother Amos was saying in terms of uh, self-determination, self-reliance. If tiny Cuba, tiny, tiny Cuba can survive, what could the African continent do? I mean... We, we know that Sheikh Adejap and, uh, and a lot of others have said, for example, the Congo alone, and we're talking about the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the Congo alone, if properly farmed, could feed the entire African continent. There would be now one hungry child anywhere on the continent of Africa if just that one country, just that one country were properly farmed. And, and you see, the other thing is that a lot of times when we, when we look at these countries and, yeah, I, you know, a lot of these countries are large in terms in terms of their in terms of their uh, size, you know, in terms in terms of their, 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 their land mass or uh, square miles. But still. These countries were carved up at the Berlin Conference. From December of 1884 to February of 1885. These are artificial borders. So the Europeans created the borders, but then we accepted the, uh, the mentality. And, what, and what's needed is, if Namibia is having a problem, Congo should be able to supply the food. If Zimbabwe is having a problem economically, South Africa, Nigeria... Tanzania, okay, what what could we 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 can work together? These are African problems, but instead, what what do what do we see? And it, it exploded this week in Azania with uh, these uh, quote unquote xenophobic attacks on what they call in foreigners. How can an African be a foreigner anywhere in Africa? I I, I mean <laughs> I just. How can how can an African be a foreigner? The freaking foreigners are from European, from Europe, and from Arabia and whatnot. Those are the foreigners from India. No one in Africa can be a foreigner in Africa. How absurd is that? <laughs> I mean, it's just and so what you have in South Africa is an is 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 an economic depression. For the masses of African people, because the white people still control over 70 percent, by some estimates, 80 percent of the land. This is the so-called mirage of the rainbow nation that uh, 
Bishop Tutu and Nelson Mandela and the others, you know, came up. They thought this was there was some somebody some there was some miracle that it was going to be a multiracial democracy, and and so um, and so what? So there are a lot of Africans. A lot of Africans go to other countries and start businesses, and so people are taking it out on those businesses and blaming them when they should be blaming, as Julius Malema said, they should be blaming the white capitalists and the African National Congress for not dealing with the economics of this of this of uh, of you know the of of this country. It's not the fact that somebody came from Nigeria and opened a business which he he employs people from Azania to work in his business. I mean, so, I mean, if this is going to be the mentality, then what will happen to Af- people from uh, Africans from America? If, 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 if you're going to take it, if, if, if a Nigerian is a foreigner, then what would we be? So, I mean, this, so what, so, so, so what we're dealing with is not only the Berlin Conference geography that has created these, uh, what uh, Professor Emma Debrieri, a brilliant African uh, scholar, calls uh, fictitious states, but 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 we also accepted the the colonial mentality, and we and we don't see ourselves as African first. It would be just like somebody saying, "Well, man, look." I'm a I'm a Floridian. <laughs> the, the heck with America. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, I'm a North Carolinian. I mean, that, that that's that's how absurd that's how absurd it is, and you know, it it shows you. But you know, a lot the the the, the root cause of a lot of this, in addition to the colonial mentality, is the fact that. You know, you have this large economy in South Africa that doesn't work for the masses of African people who live mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and as we see with the violence in our communities, a lot of, you know, the internecine conflict in Charlotte and Chicago and St. Louis and places like that, same thing. Same thing on the African continent. So, you know, I mean, I just wanted to, to bring that up, but, but, but uh, you know, we 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 have had leaders who have tried to give us a, a broader exp- uh, Africanist view, okay? Sankara. Yeah, you know, uh, and 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 and, uh, and many others, and so and so. I mean, this is this is what we need a rebirth of in order to uh, in order to you know deal with the these issues that are, that are afflicting our people. One time when I was in Uganda. Uh, one of the sisters there called me uh, Wazunga or Mazungu, which it which means foreigner. Right. Uh, so uh, I mean, across the continent, if you don't speak the language, they're gonna consider you to be a foreigner. Right. Now, when you go to the extreme of killing somebody or targeting somebody with violence because of that instead of focusing that same attention on the actual foreigners who are 
from another racial group. That when it's like you said, that's a serious problem. As many Indians, <laughs> Asians, Europeans, Arabs, and all these other people that are on the continent raping you every day mm. from the businesses that they run, the low wages that they pay you, the way that they treat you, the apartheid that still really still takes place because of the separation of you not being able to go into their communities. Exactly. Those are the people you should be focusing your attention on. And you're not attacking them at all. Right. Those are the people that you should be focusing your attention on if you want to talk about hostility against a group that's not from there. (laughs) But I think the overall African worldview of seeing the continent as a place where all African people have equal access to the entire continent is something that has to be more widespread amongst Africans on the continent. And, you know, in certain places, it's not always the case. Certain places you go, they'll treat you as if you are from there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been to a lot of countries where they think that I'm from the country when they first meet me before I actually tell them that I'm from the United States. Right. So it's just one of those things where because because of the effect um, that has come down from really colonialism, like you stated, it's created this stigma that we have to separate ourselves and only see the differences and not the similarities that make us one people. Exactly. Problems, obviously, easy to identify once again, but the solution to eradicating this colonial mindset, you know, is what I would be most interested in. Uh, Of course, we can come up with many different variables, Uh, many of them emanating from the thought processes of Dr. Amos Wilson, you know, we're talking about the identification with the oppressor, uh, the psychodynamics, conscious and unconscious factors that influence behavior, uh, latent possessions. You know, we identify with the the oppressor to the point where an attack on the oppressor is synonymous with the attack on the African self, or at least it's perceived that way. Many have talked about it, you know, Malcolm, Mama Wally, and many others. Well, you know, Garvey Garvey had an organization Right, one one God, one aim, one destiny. Africa for the Africans at home and abroad. And there were chapters. There were chapters of the UNIA in Azania, South Africa. They Gava had chapters. So he, you know, he had chapters in I think about six, six, uh, seven African countries, and. If you if you think about, you know, I always talk about how our our self-determining leaders and organizations get taken out of their development. If 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 you look at the widespread support that Garvey had in the United States, you know, in the in the Caribbean, 52 chapters in Cuba, in Latin America, in South America, and the word had even gotten, you know, 
to what was then known as the Gold Coast, Liberia. It's all the way in the in the southern Africa. So now this is in this is in this is in nineteen between say nineteen twenty and nineteen twenty three. That's when the organization really did it just exploded. The the idea Africa for the Africans resonated in the hearts of the mass of African people. So now so now give Garvey another fifteen years. Another fifteen years of uh, unimpeded uh, development, and then how many how many UNIA chapters would you have all throughout the continent of Africa? Okay, you know it had had chapters in Europe. So you know, so it's it's not that our people have have not bought into the idea or would not buy into the idea. And I think that's one of the reasons that's one of the reasons why they sought to destroy the UNIA's reputation more so than to destroy Garvey by doing the mail fraud scam on Garvey, which was effectively operating within the UNIA. Mm -hmm. They tried to raise doubt within the people that what he was doing with the Black Star Line and with the the stocks or investing into the UNIA was a fraud. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. So once they tried to do that, then they, then, then they, then they can dismantle his organization. Because they, they destroyed the confidence. They destroyed the confidence in the organization. If they would have just assassinated Garvey, mm-hmm. the UNIA probably would have still took off even more. Mm-hmm. But because of the way they did it, it was strategic. It was strategic in the way that they destroyed the confidence of the people in the UNIA. Mm-hmm. For several reasons, of course. Um, you know, one of the variables being uh, the mindset of the European is that, you know, we served as a base of cheap labor. Uh, one, I would think, uh, classic COINTELPRO tactics being used all over again. Uh, one of the things that Maroon Schultz talks about is the inability on the part of young organizations or young uh, activists, militant warriors, whatever you want to term them as, to heed the instruction on the part of more experienced you know, brothers in the struggle. There's always been this chasm. You know, brother, you don't respect me. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. this kind of thing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to the detriment of uh, these nascent, orga- uh, nascent organizations, you know, who could benefit from experience. You know, see, once again, see, we're talking about ego. You know, even though ostensibly we put forth the idea, uh, maybe even similar to Garvey, you know, Africa for the Africans, but then in terms of how we behave, it becomes nothing more than a rhetorical ethic. Mm-hmm. There is no cooperation. The cooperation breaks down because of the depth of uh, the colonial mentality that's been imposed on these uh, young warriors, you know, for lack of a better term. But you know, and the thing, the thing, the thing of it is, is that the char- the character assassination, uh, you know, which is which has been one of their major tools, um, uh, you know, really almost is is definitely you know on point there in terms of, you know, you know how 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 do we attack this? How do we attack this without? We don't want to make this guy a martyr. 
right? So, so how, you know, how, how do we attack this? And, uh, you know, that's why, uh, you know, Hoover hired the, uh, you know, five or six Negroes uh, to infiltrate the UNIA. Uh, and uh, they also infiltrated the uh, Cyril Briggs African, uh, uh, what was it, African Blood uh, Brotherhood, um, ABB. They, so so the, the, the idea was that, you know, if, if, if we can, if we can, if we can create this um, notion amongst his people that this guy is has a criminal intent, that he's ripping them off, that he's a hustler or whatever. And you look at it today, how 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 propaganda is used and how and how we readily fall for it. But this should be a part of an African-centered education. You know, and I know Africans have said this, but the one guy for me with his son Sue, you know, first rule of warfare is to know your enemy, mm. you know, across the board. Mm. You know, just to, I mean, these, these uh, this historical information has to be inculcated, mm -hmm. you know, at a very early age uh, to, you know, ward off the dirty tricks. Right. Or to at least to be alert to them Vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, I'm quoting Amos Wilson again, African people are modus operandi of always reacting to, problem, to a problems, not being proactive to this prior history uh, via education, reacting to problems and oftentimes being overwhelmed by events and circumstances. Right. Where the power in organization is... When you have an organization like Garvey's and you have people within the organization constantly organizing, then you have a stronger argument to take to the leadership of other countries in Africa, which is what the UNIA was trying to do. They were trying to negotiate with African countries on things like land, on things like uh, migration. Uh, so... This is what we really need now if we want to obtain a true goal of self-control and controlling our own destiny. We really need people who can organize under a structure, under a uniform structure, that can then work with African nations to help benefit not just us, but also that African nation to also achieve that goal of self-control and liberation. I think that that's really the key. Even though, you know, we are in a position where you have, you know, so many different groups, so many different organizations, what we really need is a governing body, a voice that can be strong enough to gain the attention of strong African leaders like, for instance, a John Magafuli. Or even when, when everything was going on in Zimbabwe, if we had that governing body, we could have worked with the Zimbabwean country to help provide resources that we have from here to support them economically to get them through that time, that those rough patches. Exactly. So if we talk about building that bridge, uh, Africa for the Africans at home and abroad, 
That's why Garvey was so dangerous because his organization was capable of doing that, and that's what the Europeans feared the most. Yeah, and it, it, uh, the other thing, and this rarely gets talked about because you know we know of that. Um, you know, the U.S. government sent Dubois. Dubois played the fool for the government, going to Liberia to uh, undermine uh, Garvey. Um, but France and England had perhaps even a greater a greater fear of Garvey's success on the continent mm-hmm. because they see because they they still controlled all of West Africa. Mm-hmm. At that at that moment, and by by seeing how this guy had aroused the consciousness of masses of people in the United States, the Caribbean, Latin America, South America, they say if this guy gets over here and arouses the consciousness in Liberia, it's gonna spread to Sierra Leone, it's gonna spread to Ghana, to Senegal, to Mali all across West Africa. And now, uh, you know, this gold mine that we have, you know, ripping these countries off, creating these uh, monocultures, all of that, all of that suddenly threatened. So instead of the African independence movement being launched, say in 1957, or in the 1950s, now it's being launched in the 1920s. I mean, you, you, you just have we have to think in terms of, of, of the potential. See, because the, the, the loss is not just of an individual or an organization. This is what we always say. We have we have to consider the impact of the loss of the potential, how much potential is lost. But we run out of time. And there are a couple other things that I wanted to get to that we that we put up. Uh, one is and I, I'm probably going to mess this sister's name up. Um, sister lives out in Seattle. Uh, Ajima Olua uh, is a writer. She wrote a book, So You Want to Talk About Race. Now, all this sister did was write a book. She goes around and gives speeches and does things. She aroused the white supremacy, the, the raw elements of the white supremacy dynamic, or maybe an institutional elements of the white supremacy dynamic, you know, out there in the, in the, in the Pacific Northwest. And the, the white supremacy dynamic is extremely strong in the Pacific Northwest. We already know this, you know, from Rob Matthews and, you know, the Aryan nations and all of these guys. And so and so they set up a swatting uh, uh, attack. Uh, and, 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 and I'm going to read this because to me, this this is the same tactic. This is part of the same tactics of what I call the new lynch party with. All of these people calling the police on black people for cutting the grass, for knocking on the door, for having a barbecue or whatever. Uh, so on, on, on our Facebook page, we posted this. Beware of swatting. White supremacists used swatting to attack a black Seattle writer. They were obviously hoping for a lynching and extrajudicial killing by the police. Swatting involves someone reporting a fake crime typically involving gunfire or extreme violence to police hoping to get law enforcement to deploy to the home six rifle carrying police officers pulled my son out of his bed at 6 a.m because someone pretending to be him called and said that he had murdered two people in my home wow okay and so and so I, i'm saying what we're saying is, is beware 
that this is something that they could use on any of us. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, what, what they had done with her is uh, they have this um, uh, uh, swatting um, thing set up on social media where they where they will post your address and phone number. To other white supremacists. OK, now, why why aren't Google and, and, and Facebook and all these people monitoring this? And, and, and shutting these sites down since they so quick to, you know, want to shut something down. Here's something that, that could and has actually caused caused lives, uh, you know, uh, before. And, you know, and, and, and it almost led to a disastrous situation for their sister. So I'm just telling people, you know, we want our audience to be aware. OK, here comes another tactic from the white supremacy dynamic. And it's called swatting. Right. The police show up in you at your home. They, they might they call the swatting a SWAT team. They call the SWAT team out and they come and say, OK, you know, they might say, you know, you know, Makaru committed a murder, <laughs> you know. And so here come here come the police. And then you get awakened in the middle of the night. You don't know who it is. You might think it's somebody breaking in and you defend yourself. And then, boom, what happens? So just uh, I just that's just something that, that, that we that here's another tactic, okay? That, that's being used, and uh, I'm glad this sister uh, went public to let people know. Another thing uh, that we posted was uh, the tragedy of children being killed in St. Louis, and we've been calling it the tyranny of stray bullets because a lot of times you know it it appears that that it, there are incidents of black on black violence, but in this particular case. Uh, this the 15 year old Centonio Cox was killed by a 54 year old white man. Now, uh, most of these child murders are unsolved. So when we see something like this, it makes us wonder. Are there others? Are there other black children dead in St. Louis? This is what this is what we wrote in St. Louis. This was not a stray bullet. 15-year-old Centonio Cox was backing away with his hands raised when a white man shot him in the head. 54-year-old Joseph Rennick faces charges of first-degree first murder, armed criminal, criminal action, unlawful possession of a farm for a fatal shooting of 15-year-old Cox on Sunday, August 25th. Rennick is the first person in St. Louis to be charged in the fatal shooting of a child this summer. Charges have not been filed in any of the other 12 fatal shootings. We don't want to jump to conclusions here, but we've been saying for years with so many unsolved homicides in many American cities, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that white supremacist lone wolves are doing some of the killing. Now, we've been saying that for years because it's an ideal situation. I mean, the camouflage, uh, the cover is there because of because there has been so much black on black violence that provides a cover for lone wolves to, to, to come through. Uh, you know, we, we have drive-by shootings all the time, fire into a crowd, get away, police catch nobody. We think it's a gang-banging thing, and it's not. So, uh, you know, they made they did make this one arrest, uh, you know, in St. Louis, and we have to wonder, you know, how many others are there like this, you know, around the country? So we've got about seven minutes left, fellas. Whatever else y'all want to hear? Well... We, uh, at the top of the show, we uh, talked about sports, um, this new 
phase, well, actually not a new phase. Uh, the NFL has always done this. They have co-opted um, our movements, our legitimate struggles. Uh, I can go back to the time of uh, Richard Nixon, who instituted the concept of black capitalism to stave off black power. And, of course, he used our esteemed brother, James Brown. You know, nothing new about Jay-Z in this respect. Uh, Brown, um, of course, did away with his process during the black power movement. The height of black consciousness went natural. Uh, produced a classic seller. Played at every barbecue. Said loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And, of course, discarded that ideology in terms of his lyrics and uh, digress to living in America, <laughs> eye to eye, station to station. Of course, uh, and this really is it's kind of painful in a way, but this harkens back to what bro Brother Amos was saying about uh, the Brother Mugabe. Uh, we all have dirty hands in this respect. There's no one who occupies pristine space. Even the great Muhammad Ali was used by Richard Nixon uh, and used by Jimmy Carter during the proposed 1980 boycott. But once again, you know, the concept of holism versus fragmentation, you know, if it applies to Mugabe, it applies to some of our sports heroes. And, you know, from the standpoint of Gullah Jack here, you know, Muhammad Ali still remains to be the most significant uh, war protester of my of my time you know without question but um what what what's the, the the most recent attempt to domesticate our movement uh we were talking about this earlier to co-opt our movement uh men uh you want to talk about that a little bit well speaking of sports we recently talked about the jay-z situation and now the nfl in partnership with Jay-Z is donating money to two organizations that were founded by whites and very questionable <laughs> activities that have taken place. One of the organizations, an organization called Crushers Club, which was founded by Sally Hazelgrove, mm -hmm. uh, was known for cutting off the dreadlocks of children <laughs> and saying all lives matter. Right. Now, $400,000 oh to two different groups, mm -hmm. which is equal to about $800,000, is really not even peanuts to both Jay-Z and the NFL. Right. But the NFL had already pledged $90 million to the players mm -hmm. to get them to stop kneeling. Exactly. So where is that? I haven't heard anything about <laughs> where those funds have been allocated. We might, have, we might want to ask Malcolm Jenkins. <laughs> It'd be something that we have to research. But here you have the start of the NFL season coming up this weekend, and it's going to be interesting, interesting to see, you know, what the players will do this year in light of the Jay-Z and the NFL partnership and what will come from this. We know that it's going to make Jay-Z richer. Hmm. He's, a, he's a businessman. Right. He did it. <laughs> and the capitalist. He did it for himself. Yes, sir. Well, yep. we know we know that the Dolphins traded Kenny Stills, yep, to uh, to Houston. Expected, yeah, exactly. After he criticized the owner for uh, claiming to be for social justice and 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 
organizing a $250,000 plate dinner for for Donald Trump, so they promptly traded him. Kenny Steele's and Eric Reed uh, seem to be, uh, you know, on an island, but you know, we'll we'll see what happens. And I want to I want to close out the show since we, this is the day that Robin Mugabe transitioned. One of the things Robin Mugabe said this is about four years ago in a speech that he gave where he referenced Marcus Garvey. I don't have the audio to play. He referenced Marcus Garvey and he said that Africans in the diaspora, specifically African Americans and Africans need to work together to fight against their racial oppressions mm. for the betterment of Africa. Right. So we take that teaching and that's something that we constantly say here on this show that the Africans in the diaspora and the Africans on the continent have one common enemy, and that is the European. Mm -hmm. And the blood that binds us should be greater than the seas that divide us. I say. This has been the African Liberation Media. Baby for Hodier. A baby for Hodier. Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not job, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. You are buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.